Good morning. It is great to be back. I uh, know some of you, some of you are new from when I was last here. I have the privilege of being here every year or two because you are one of the supporting churches for our ministry. So I thank Pastor Ben for inviting me to return. If you don't know, our ministry, Teaching Truth International, travels around the world and teaches pastors in countries where they cannot go to seminary, at least not a real seminary. And um, I thank you for your support and your praise for that ministry. Um, I just got back from teaching in Costa Rica about a week or 10 days ago. We had about 90 students in two different cities, San Jose, the capital, and uh, Heredia, a suburb of San Jose. My next international trip will be in January. I'll be in El Salvador. That'll be our first time in that country, so we're opening up our ministry there. I might give you also an update on my ministry in China. As you may remember, I taught in China 36 different times before I was sort of bounced out. Uh, President Xi Jinping, for some reason, doesn't like Western Christians coming in and teaching Christians there in China, so I cannot go back. But God has provided a way I can still teach into China through Zoom, a Zoom connection in Tokyo, Japan. I'm now able to teach some of my students who have scattered into several different cities in China, as well as Australia, Japan, France, Iraq, and the United Arab Emirates. So on some Saturday mornings, Saturday mornings for me, maybe the middle of the night for some of them, I get to teach for three hours to a whole bunch of my former Chinese students. And uh, quite remarkable that God has provided that opportunity. Well, as you heard a little while ago, we'll be in the chapter one of John's gospel, the first paragraph, one, one through five. I invite you to turn to that passage. And as you do that, I will set it up. Um, this remarkable paragraph is a foundational text of several foundational doctrines, the bedrock of some essential Christian doctrines that we hold to. John's words are very simple, but his ideas are extremely profound. So we're going to consider some mysteries in this text as we plow through it. And uh, I'm going to i give you a warning ahead of time. We're going to do some deep thinking, so buckle your academic seatbelts. John is going to take us on a, a wild ride of some extraordinary things. We're going to do four things in this message. One, we're going to analyze the text in detail. That'll be the longest part of this message. Two, we will quickly list some of the doctrines that are in this passage and who those doctrines refute. Number three, we'll consider specifically how the Jehovah's Witnesses distort this passage, and I'll respond to that. And then finally, some quick applications for us. So let's begin with the first section, the textual exposition. We see the eternality and deity of the Word, the living Word, in verses 1 and 2. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John's in the beginning is before the Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. Moses was writing about God's first act, creation. John is speaking of the words pre-existence before that first act. So John is writing about eternity past, not the beginning of time that began as part of creation in Genesis 1. The living word existed forever before he spoke the universe into existence. In the Old Testament, God's word is his speech, his self-expression. And the second person of the Trinity, 
is God the Father's eternally generated self-expression, which is so perfect, so full, so complete, it is another person. It is the eternal Son, God's eternally generated self-expression. That's more than existing forever into the past. It refers to God's timelessness. Since time began as part of God's creation, he is not bound by it. He created time, so he is outside of time. That means that God sees all of time and all the events in time simultaneously. Right now, what you and I call now, God is watching the Battle of Leuctra between the Thebans and the Spartans in 371 B.C. He's watching that right now. He's also right now watching you eat breakfast two Saturday mornings ago. And right now he's watching us here, our now, and he's watching whatever we'll all be doing ten years from now. He sees it all simultaneously. In the Bible, God, by himself, no other designation, usually refers to the Father. So our passage, the word was with God, tells us this word is associated with the Father, but distinct from the Father. And the word was God. So we have more than one person, and now we see the word was God. That tells us that this word is deity. He is God, like the Father is God. So this eternal living word and God the Father are equal in their essence, their being, but they're distinct persons. Notice what Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Now, he doesn't mean we're the same individual, the same person, but we're one in essence. Our traits, characteristics, attributes are the same. John then repeats in the beginning and with God to emphasize that eternal distinction between the Father and the eternal Christ. So we have equality of essence, but distinction of persons. And that unity of one God, but diversity of persons, forms the building blocks of the Trinity. So the living word eternally existed as God, with God the Father. Next we see that he acted in verse 3. Creation through the word. All things were created through him. And apart from him, nothing was created that has been created. The eternal second person of the Trinity is the personal agent through whom God created. Hebrews 1.2 and 4.12 both say the same statement, referring to the eternal Son, the eternal Christ, through whom also he made the universe. And John's word created means came into existence, what theologians refer to as creation ex nihilo, Latin for created out of nothing. In other words, God did not refashion pre-existing materials when he created the universe. There were no pre-existing materials. Prior to creation, there was no stuff, no physical stuff. There was no time, as we noted. There was no space. There were no laws of physics. Prior to creation, there was only God. Now, when I try to think about no space, what comes to my mind is sort of a big empty vacuum with nothing in it, because that's what a vacuum is. And it's all filled up with God, but that's not correct. 
because a big empty vacuum implies space, dimensions of height, length, and width. Before creation, there were no dimensions of height, length, and width. There was no space. There was nothing but God. Now, don't think too hard on that. It'll blow the circuitry. <laughs> we can explore that more in eternity. Well, God's word is so powerful. The living word is so powerful. It simply spoke and things came into existence. Consider Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. I love the poetic rhythm of that statement. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And in our passage, all things is all created things, both material and spiritual. The word, the living word spoke, and all material things and spiritual things came into existence. The Apostle Paul expands on John's comment in Colossians 1.16. Paul says, in him, referring to the Son, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, in other words, material and immaterial, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, Paul's designation for four different categories of spirit beings, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And then the next verse, Colossians 1.17, Paul adds a new element. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that says that the eternal Christ not only spoke the universe into existence, he sustains it. He keeps it going. I suppose we could say he's the eternal cosmic battery that runs everything. Physicists say, well, the universe operates by the laws of physics. And at one level, that's true. But behind the laws of physics is the eternal Christ who keeps them all energized. And he can shut it off in a moment. And when he comes back, he will change them dramatically. John adds, apart from him, nothing was created that has been created. This is a statement that tells us the Son was not created. He created every created thing, excludes himself. And there's a basic point of logic here. He could not create himself if he didn't already exist. Don't think about that one too long either. That'll tie you in knots. But he couldn't do anything before he was. He created every created thing. So he is not part of that creation. Next we see this word not only eternally exists and acted, he's also the source of life and light in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This living word is more than just living as, as we think of it. He is life itself. You remember what he said in John eleven twenty five 25a? I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. God's life is eternal. It is always existing, past, present, future, even outside of past, present, future. That raises a question for us. If the essential nature of life is eternal, why does it end? In other words, why is there death that we will all face, and the animals and the plants all face? Why is there death? That's because of sin. Sin introduced death into God's creation by Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. But we also know the good side of that. God restores life to its natural, 
eternal essence in those who believe in Jesus, the source of life. This life in God refers to the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. I know that's a word you've all just been itching to hear. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It means self-existence. It comes from Latin and Greek. It means of himself. Um, stated another way, God does not need to tap into some other source for his own life or his own existence or his own being. It is all within himself. And the eternal son shares the father's self-existing life. John 5, 26, hear what Jesus said. As the father has life in himself, aseity, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. In other words, part of the father's eternally generated self-expression into the second person, the son, is that eternal life, that living existence, that aseity. The father generates that into the son as well. He has eternally generated that into his son. As the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. As life, God is the source of all life. <clears throat> Psalm 36, 9a, for with you is the fountain of life. All of life bubbles up, it springs up from God. He is the fountain, the source of all life. Life is that essential thing that distinguishes a living something from a rock or dirt. Whatever kind of life we talk about. Angelic life, human life, animal life, plant life the trees, the flowers, the grass, they all derive their life, that something that is life, those different kinds of life, from God. He is the only source of life in the universe. In Scripture, now we come to light, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In Scripture, light often symbolizes one of two things. One, knowledge, typically knowledge of spiritual things. It's the means of seeing, of understanding, of comprehension. And that Jesus is that means of seeing. He is that light. Um, Psalm 36, 9b, in your light, we see light. In other words, in God's understanding of spiritual things, his complete omniscient knowing everything, we see light. This refers at least indirectly to what we call the doctrine of illumination, to enlighten or illuminate. And that happens in two ways, or two different categories of people. For unbelievers, God the Holy Spirit illuminates their understanding of the gospel for those who he is drawing to salvation. That's one aspect of the doctrine of illumination. The Spirit illuminates their understanding. So they hear the gospel, they say, yes, I understand it. And for those he gives to get the faith, they accept it. For you and me as believers, Illumination means that the Holy Spirit helps us understand the word he wrote as we study it. He illuminates or enlightens us as we go over the scriptures. Now be careful that you don't think illumination means that the Holy Spirit immediately zaps us with biblical theological brilliance. I occasionally bump into people who think that. That's not what illumination means. The Spirit was not given to make study unnecessary but to make study effective. I tell my students that around the world about three times every class I teach because we have a lot of brothers and sisters around the world 
who think that they don't have to study God's word. They can walk into the pulpit and he'll just give them what he, they want to speak. Well, they may speak something, but it's not from the Holy Spirit. So we emphasize that the Spirit was not given to make study unnecessary, but to make study effective. The second thing that light sometimes symbolizes in the Bible is moral purity, uh, consistency with God's standards, holiness. Um, Paul writes about this in Ephesians 5, 8 and 9. Walk or live your manner of life as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Do you remember that Jesus claimed to be both life and light? I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the light of the world. By now you might realize what John is doing in this opening paragraph. He is summarizing some of the core teachings he heard from Jesus 50 years before John wrote this. John is writing a, probably about the mid-80s. Jesus' earthly ministry was from 27 to 30 is probably the date you can put on it. So five decades before John wrote, he heard Jesus teach on these things, and John is now summarizing some of those key teachings. We might even call this first paragraph the Cliff's Notes version of some of Jesus' core teachings. In our passage, the light of all mankind refers to revelation. I'm not speaking now of the name of the last book in the Bible, but of God's revealing himself to mankind, which if he did not do, we would not know him. And there are two kinds of revelation, two categories, one called general revelation, which is God revealing general truth about himself to mankind in general. And that comes through nature, through the creation. In Romans 1.20, Paul addresses that. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. In other words, mankind can look at that, that, that creation and say, that's not an accident. Somebody did that. General revelation also comes from within us. God has planted something within us where we realize we're not alone. And Paul expands on that somewhat in chapter 2 of Romans. The other kind of revelation is special revelation. And that's needed. Because general revelation just says somebody's there. He's really big. He's really strong. He really makes cool stuff but I don't know how to reach him. We cannot be saved by general revelation, so God gives us special revelation. The highest, most complete, perfect, special revelation is the incarnation, Jesus Christ himself. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I'm not saying he is the Father, he's saying this is exactly what the Father's like. I am exactly what the Father's like. And Jesus, however, in the flesh is gone. So part of special revelation is the written word. So special revelation came from the living word, and now we have the written word, which gives us the details of how to be saved and how to live a life that pleases God. That's the word that you hold in your hand. So if you want to learn of God and about God and grow to be more Christ-like, get into the word he wrote. What does this light do in verse 5? The light shines 
and the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. To this point in John's paragraph, he has been writing in past tense verbs in his old Greek language. And now he switches to the present tense verbs, which in his language emphasizes ongoing action. That's not an accident. John is not a sloppy writer. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is deliberately saying God's light keeps on shining. That's the point of this passage in the tense that he wrote. The light keeps on shining in the darkness. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness, implying before they come to Christ, they were in the darkness. And until they come to Christ, the light of the world, they remain in darkness. Darkness in Scripture also symbolizes something. It typically symbolizes this fallen world under the control of Satan, evil in general, Satan and his demonic horde. And as such, that introduces what we might call the cosmic spiritual war between God and Satan's rebellion against him. This darkness, however, is not eternal. It began with the fall and the curse resulting from Adam's sin in the garden. And Paul writes one result of the fall in Romans 21, 21. By the way, this is the verse right after his comment on general revelation. They can look at creation and realize somebody did that. And then Paul says, although they knew God, from what I, Paul, just said in the previous verse, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sin blinded the human race to God and his truth. And it still does. That's the need for the sun's light and the spirit's illumination. Without those two things, people remain in darkness. The phrase did not overcome it, the darkness did not overcome the light, implies an attack, a failed attack. Since the fall, Satan has attacked God and his word and his salvation plan and his people, but Satan has failed. Any apparent victories we see that Satan has are merely temporary. They will not stand. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, the darkness did not overcome the light. Satan didn't overcome Jesus then or now, and he won't in the future. What a rich passage. There's a lot in here. There's a whole book. There's a whole theology book in this one paragraph. And you can see what John had done. He has written in what we might call fourth grade grammar and vocabulary to convey extraordinarily profound ideas. You may have heard the phrase, the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. I don't know who first came up with that. I know there's Augustine, or there's one of the greats in church history, but uh, that, is, that is the way John writes. Very simple vocabulary and grammar and uh, very profound ideas. Well, that's the first section of this message, and as I said, that's by far the longest. So if you're thinking, we've got three more of those to go, we're not going to be out here till noon Tuesday. 
That's not true. The next three will be quite a bit quicker. Next, we'll have the theological expansion. I will quickly list the doctrines that are stated or implied in this passage and who those doctrines refute. Number one, the timelessness and aseity of God. Now, those are two different things. At this point, it's just about the nature of God, the timelessness and aseity of God. That refutes something called open theism, a relatively new heresy of just the last one or two generations, the idea that God does not know the future. In fact, God's knowledge and God himself are evolving along with the universe as it evolves, a rather bizarre heresy that's just recently come about. Number two, the deity of Christ is in this passage. That refutes Jehovah's Witnesses and liberal theologians, most of whom deny the deity of Christ. Number three, the Trinity. This refutes pantheists. Pantheism is the idea that God and the universe are really the same thing. In fact, the word pantheism means all is God. God is every, everything in the universe. Everything in the universe, that is God. That is not true. It refutes polytheists, the belief in many gods. It refutes Mormonism. Mormons are polytheists. It refutes Unitarians, Arians. Arianism is something I'll come back to and explain in a few moments. And that's a fourth, say, fourth century heresy. It refutes Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, and modalists. Modalism is the false belief that there's only one person in the Godhead. Not three, one. And he, that one person, appeared in three different modes or forms at three different times in history. He appeared as the Father in the Old Testament, as Jesus in the Gospels, and as the Spirit in Acts, the Epistles, and on to today. That's called modalism. Probably the most well-known modalist today is a guy named T.D. Jakes. He's a popular uh, motivational speaker, and he's a pastor of a cult called Oneness Pentecostalism, which is not part of the, what I'll call the legitimate Pentecostal church. He just, they just stole their name. Uh, Oneness Pentecostalism, or Jesus-only Pentecostalism, but it's a cult. He's a heretic. Number four, creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. That refutes evolution, various forms of Darwinism, philosophical materialists. Those are people who believe that matter or energy are eternal. They are not. Five, revelation, general and special revelation. This refutes deism. Deism is the belief in one God who did create the universe, but then he sort of shoved it off into its own existence and turned his back on it and walked away in effect, and has no more contact with it. Uh, this also refutes um, ideas of ongoing revelation, that God is still giving more truth, like the Book of Mormon, or a lot of claims about dreams and visions. God told me something last night in a vision. No. Six, illumination. Uh, that refutes deists again and secularists. Seven, the fall and the curse. This refutes um, utopians such as uh, various forms of Marxist and communist and socialist and their utopian dream of a worker's paradise. Um, I would insert here that I've taken 92 international teaching trips all over the world. Almost all of those trips have been to communist or socialist countries. Put together, I've lived about five years under socialism. And I will tell you, socialism is no worker's paradise. It's no paradise by any definition. Socialism not only destroys productive economic systems, it destroys human civilization. So for the naive fools in our country who are enamored with socialist ideas, I would say, 
buyer beware, you may not get what you think you want. I've got five years of life under it, I can tell you. Well, I'm on a tangent. Number eight, the cosmic conflict. Uh, this refutes pacifist dreams of a world with no war. Jesus said there will always be wars and rumors of wars until I come back. And recent events have demonstrated that. It also refutes ideas of cosmic dualism, like you see in Star Wars, of, of a good force and an evil force kind of locked in eternal battle. Um, and an ancient religion called Zoroastrianism, an ancient Persian religion which believes there's a good God and a bad God, and they're always fighting each other. By the way, Zoroastrianism still exists in some isolated pockets of Iran today. Well, the Bible's teaching uh, refutes that. The next section, number three, on apologetic interaction. Uh, let's talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses and how they handled John 1.1 and Colossians 1.15. In 1961, the JWs put out their own translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. And it translates John 1.1 this way. The Word was a God. You catch that? The Word was a God, and God is with a small g. They mean by that that <clears throat> Christ was not eternal. He was not divine. He was only a powerful God-like created being. That is Arianism, a fourth century heresy that was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and condemned again at the Council of Constantinople in 381. It's just an old heresy that the JWs brought up again. I guess they were bored, had nothing else to do. So they said, let's go back and find an ancient heresy and we'll throw it out there. That's what it is. There is a Greek rule of grammar called Coldwell's Rule, and I won't bore you with the details of what the rule is, but it explains that the correct translation of John 1.1 1, 1 is not a God, as the New World Translation says. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses wanted a little academic respectability or credibility for their translation, so they contacted Dr. Julius Mante, who was one of the great Greek scholars of the mid-20th century, and they wanted him to write, read it and write a review, and he did. He wrote a long, scathing indictment of how horrible it was. And I'll just read you the punchline, quoting Dr. Mente. I have never read any New Testament so badly translated. And he went on to say, it is a distortion of the New Testament. According to every Greek scholar, the correct translation of John 1.1 is, the word was God as all of your translations say, whichever one you use. So sometimes when uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses have knocked on your door and interrupted your brunch on Saturday morning, they've gone through John 1-1. That's often their opening play. And maybe you successfully refuted that. Then they turn to Colossians 1-15 to support their view of John 1-1. Colossians 1-15 says, the Son is the firstborn of all creation. Oh, that might sound a little fishy. The Son was the firstborn of all creation, and they play that up. They say that means Christ was the first created being. And maybe you weren't sure how to respond to that. In fact, maybe now you're thinking, oh, what does that mean? 
Well, they again reveal their ignorance of the Greek language. The Greek word translated firstborn in our language is the Greek word prototokos. And when prototokos is used with a plural, the firstborn of a plurality, it means he's the first in that series of things. And that's how they take it. However, this passage says that Christ is the firstborn of creation, and creation is singular. And when prototokos is used with the singular, it means he is the supreme one over that one thing. So this passage is not saying Christ was the first created being. It's actually saying Christ is the supreme one over creation. So there's a little ammunition for you on your next Saturday morning interruption. Well, finally, let's get to three quick application principles. Number one, praise God for who he is and what he's done in creation and salvation. Praise God for who he is and what he's done in creation and salvation. That should be our first response to this great passage. That should probably be our first response to any passage in the Bible, really. That should be the response of our whole lives. Praise God for who he is and what he's done in creation and salvation. Number two, learn. Learn the biblical text, theology, apologetics, and church history. You can see I'm not really a teacher. Learn the biblical text, theology, apologetics, and church history. God deliberately designed us as human beings with linguistic aptitude. We have the capacity to understand language. God communicated to us by writing us a book in human language. That's not an accident. That's intentional. He deliberately communicated us to us about himself, how to be saved, and how to live a godly life, by specifically writing us in a way that we could comprehend. And that match is perfect. He expects us to read it and study it and learn it and do what it says. Consider the enormous privilege we have. Do you realize that throughout most of church history, most of God's people were illiterate? They could not read. And most of them did not have God's word translated into their language. And that's still true in parts of the world today. We have an unimaginable privilege that most of God's people throughout history or today would have given anything to have. We're illiterate people. If you're past the third or fourth grade, you can read. And we have the Bible translated into our language. Do not waste that privilege that others have died for and still die for. I teach some people who have relatives that have been martyred and killed for the faith. And I teach hundreds, many hundreds of people who would give anything to have the privileges we have of being literate and having the Bible in their own language. And number three, be convinced and confident. Be convinced and confident of the truth of Christianity and beware of falsehoods. Be convinced 
and confident of the truth of Christianity and beware of falsehoods. Christianity is true. The other options are not. Don't be tempted away by heresies or cults. So be learning, be encouraged, and praise God.